Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey all, welcome. Thank you, Joseph. And welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover. And today I would like to talk about the importance of barriers in at least initial training. And I did a podcast tonight with some people and we talked about it and I wanted to kind of really hone in on it in a way that was easy for you all to find it in the episode list if you wanted it again in the future. I really think it's that important because careful use of barriers, especially in initial training, really increase safety and they can increase efficiency incredibly. And there's a couple of reasons why. Safety first, and it's for both parties. If you are working over a barrier, the animal has limited to access to you, and he knows that you have limited access to him. You can't, you know, grab him and pull him out. You can't pursue him. And he can retreat to a place where he feels safe. It's his choice to come to the interaction. That's huge. That's really huge. Now, there's other ways that we can make it clear to the animal that it's his choice to interact. And one of those is by making a convention between you that uh, you will say what you want to do. And so you'll state your intention And then you make a practice of honoring that. You don't, for example, here's something you never do. Don't ever do this. Throw food on the ground to an animal that's really food obsessed. And then when they're focused on the food, stick a needle in their behind. Don't do that. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people want to give an animal a vaccine or something that way. Can you do it? once, maybe, maybe even more than once, but it's just not a good way to go forward. If you think animals don't notice these little transgressions and keep track, ignorance is bliss. (laughs) But you don't want to have that kind of bliss because it can uh, get you injured in the long run. So safety first, you want the animal to feel comfortable that it's his choice, that he can retreat, that Um, You can't pursue or grab that his opinion, his decision is important in the work that you do together, but also for your own safety. You limit the access that the animal has and you... Uh, there's there's limited you limit the access the animal can have now that's not you know it's not all there is to it i worked with an a bull elephant in the netherlands 
and the staff was great. It was at Blydorp Zoo. And they had a line next to, that had protected contacts. So there's a wall. The wall had openings in it so that you could interface with the elephant and his trunk, his feet, you know, like file the feet and so on. However, the line was to remind you to stay on the far side of that line so that you were always more than an extended trunk's distance away because the reality is animals and their emotions and irritations and frustrations and past traumas, who knows what, they can grab you and pull you someplace so fast. And boy, do I have stories on this, but that's for another time. If you are working on the far side of a barrier, then the animal comes over if they want to, and you can leave the session at any time. You can give the animal time to think about what's just happened. You can give the animal time to recover from the excitement of learning. Learning is great and animals love it just like we do. But that excitement that comes just from making these associations and being successful and so on, that can be a challenge for the animal to cope with. And they learn to cope. <sighs> they gain skills in managing their emotions, coping with stress. And they really love to learn, just like we love to learn. And we love to work with them learning. But it's really to everyone's benefit if you can pace the learning and give the animal time between trials to think about what just happened, to rehearse, to think about what's going to happen, to think about the verbal information you give them so they can process it without you moving closer, you know, kind of intruding on their personal space, pressuring them in any way intended or not intended. And, and that's something that's really important because especially as I um, work with talented, dedicated, up-and-coming trainers, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of nuance to successful training, successful leadership, people, or animals. A lot of times we don't realize what we're doing, um, what we're saying to an animal. So, for example... You go stand in front of a horse, I don't recommend it. Why are you doing that? Where should you be standing instead? If you stand directly in front of a horse where it can't really see you, how does that bias the way the horse interacts with you? How does that predispose you to injury and other problems? If you're working on the outside of a barrier, you just don't have that problem because the bison isn't about to run you over. Now, another issue that happens when you go in with an animal is you're there to train. You're there 
to teach that animal as many critical skills or, you know, task skills or uh, adaptive, adaptive skills as you can in the shortest amount of time with the most success, the most comfort, the most safety. It is not in your client's interest for you to play with their animals. They don't need you to form a great friendship with their animal. They need you to set the animal up to be successful with all of their staff. And even in some of the terrible situations that can come up, for example, at National Zoo, we taught the sea lions to swim away from things dropping in the water, like kids. And we did drills and so on. And the whole point is that if somebody throws themselves in the water, and they do, you don't want the animal just like being so surprised by it that they go swimming over and maybe the person is floundering around and scared and grabs at the animal or, you know, maybe they inappropriately try to interface with the animal and the animal is shocked and maybe frightened or maybe um, just doesn't know what to do and nips them and gets shot. Yeah, so let's just not do that. Let's teach the animals to stay away from people and let's not put people in with them when it's not appropriate or safe or in the animal's or client's best interest. So I just thought of a story I need to tell you and that'll come a little bit later on. But let's talk about uh, how it can go forward. So safety first, that's the first reason to work over a barrier. And the next one is um, to create a habit of success. Now, let me think for a minute here, because I want to also tell you about safety, habit of success, focus. Okay. So the habit of success, you get an animal, let's say a dog that's from some shelter and needs some more skills to be able to live successfully in a home with people. If you go in with that dog and he gets aroused and nippy and jumps up on the people, first of all, you're creating bad habits. Secondly, you're tempting the dog to, you know, get all adrenalized, dopaminized, whatever, and to make errors in judgment that could really influence his future for the worse. Now, if he has a history of past trauma, distrust of people, uncertainty, stress from being in the shelter. You don't need to add to that. So when you stay on the outside and do those things that you can teach equally well from over a barrier 
and you allow the animal to get a habit of success. So what are things you can easily teach over a barrier? Bridges, both kinds, intermediate and terminal. Name and explain. You can name all kinds of events, people, locations, items, scents, anything you can think of, right? You can name that from over a barrier. You can be outside weeding and be actually training the animals on exhibit easily. Um, other things you can teach over the barrier, the targets, the finger target, the state, the pole target, the station target, a visual target, even a referential target. And it's easy and it's very fast. You can teach the send away. You can teach body parts, orientations, like you can teach the animal to orient his shoulder and his hip to the barrier so that you can you know, take a hair sample, do an exam, that kind of thing. You can teach him to do the other side. You can teach him to stand up. You can teach him to lie down, uh, to sit down, to let you spray his ears, possibly even to brush his teeth. There is so much we can do over a barrier. Now, when we do that, it's going to be more efficient because as soon as, let's say you have exactly the same training skill, exactly the same list of training tasks, and let's do an experiment. And this is an experiment we actually did wasn't supposed to be one, but it ended up to be one. I had a great opportunity to go to the Handicap Writing Center, Equitation Center in the Netherlands. And I arranged to have accommodations to teach a bunch of certified trainers in exchange for doing training with some of the horses there. That's such a great deal because it's difficult to get this kind of experience when you're just starting out. And since these trainers, you know, I knew they were good and I could vouch for them. And I was right there and it allowed us to leverage the man hours that we had for, in other words, if I went there to help them, even if I was perfectly happy to donate all my time, I could only do so much, you know, I'd have one day or something like that. And I could train whatever horses I could interact with directly in one day. But when you take eight trainers to a center like that, you can spend two hours on each of four horses. You can have a team of trainers so that you can, you know, you can have a team of trainers assigned to each horse, two trainers at least per horse. And that allows you to do things that you can't do with a single trainer. For example, if you want to teach the concept of send away, you can do that with one person, 
but you can only do it an arm's length away or an arm's length and a target pull away. But if you have a second trainer, you can have that second trainer be initially two inches away and then a foot away and then 10 feet away and then 50 feet away. And then you can have additional trainers in a series. You can teach the animal to go around an entire circuit. You can teach them to go at different gates, like running versus walking versus trotting versus pacing. So much we can do. You can have stations set up where one of the things that um, Annette Harwood did at Wood Green Animals uh, Shelters is she taught a goat to understand about his horns. And this was critical for safety because the goat was careless with his horns and he could really injure somebody. And they had a big conduit and Annette taught this goat to go through the conduit and that allowed him to learn where his horns stuck out and to learn to be careful of them around other people. Save the goat's life, as a matter of fact. So you can teach a lot and first of all, have that animal be confident of his success and already liking training and having a habit of being successful in the training. But you can also train him more efficiently because you've limited his focus. And so he can learn all these things before you even go inside the exhibit with him. So I mentioned an experiment. We had 28 behaviors that we needed to teach these horses. I'm going to try to remember this. I have it in my notes, but I'm going to have to remember it. Uh, just remember it right now. So I'm going to try to be accurate. But anyway, there were 28 behaviors. I led one group. Another trainer led another group and so on. There were four groups. All the trainers were good. But I asked them all, please stay out of the paddocks with the horses until you have taught everything that you can teach from outside. So we all go off to teach these 28 behaviors, which included both bridges, the targets, name and explain, or I'm sorry, body parts, um, durations on target counting, directions, yeah, this kind of thing. Allowing themselves to have their halters put on and taken off their bridles, uh, you know. So we go out and train these animals. We come back together. My group had covered all 28 behaviors. In the same amount of time, the second group, I believe, had covered 20 or let's say 22. That's still pretty good. The other two groups had covered eight and 10 out of 28. And you know what the difference was? The last two groups didn't honor the request to stay outside and teach everything you could first. They went straight in with the animals. Well, that wasn't 
the best decision. If it had been the best decision, they would have trained all 28 things also. So when you go in and it's a professional, it's not about us playing with the animals. It's not about us amazing people with how good we are with animals or how quickly the animals like us or how much they want to be with us. It is a position of trust where we are there to steward and guide the animals into their best possible life. And that means we need to help them gain critical skills. And if we have a short amount of time with them, we need to do it efficiently. So do you want in a single session to get 28 out of 28 behaviors covered? Or do you want to get eight? So that can be the difference of starting over a barrier. Now, in addition to creating a habit of success, a barrier also allows you to develop some trust and reliability. So the animal sees how you operate and whether or not you're a person of your word. And if you've listened to the podcast from the beginning, you know that the very first thing I cover is integrity. I believe that having integrity with the animals is the most important thing we can do to ensure everybody's safety. If that animal knows that you don't do any kind of funny business, you don't try to grab them or take more license than they authorized, they're not anywhere near as likely to bite or grab or whatever. So it makes a huge difference. And for you with the animal, you also need a chance to build trust. We don't know what background these animals have. We don't even know what their tendencies are. So we need to give them an opportunity to reveal their characters. And animal character is just like ours. It is a work in progress. So don't feel terrible if the animal is less than trustworthy, but do go to work, right? That's what you want to change. So to summarize all of that, the barrier allows us to limit the access of the animal to us so they can't mug, jump, bite, pull us in. It allows us to limit the duration so that we can give them time to process stuff. We can give them uh, time to process the information we give them and the experiences they just had. And it limits the focus to the learning material. It takes away the option to frisk us, jump up on us, play with us, try to bedevil us. And it allows us to end on the right note. So what is the right note? Well, it depends, really. Uh, There are... Most of the time, we like to end on a so-called good note. A good note is where the animal is still enjoying the training. He's very engaged. He wishes he could have more. And we quit at the time where the animal's just done a really good job. So it's a high point and 
we praise them and leave them. Now, that's a good thing to be able to decide that, but that becomes very much more complex when you are on the other side of the barrier. If you don't know it, and I'm sorry, I cannot cite this, but at an Amada conference in sometime around 1990, uh, there was information shared that the most frequent way that trainers, exotic animal trainers got injured or killed was by one of two events, getting between two animals that were having an argument or leaving an animal that wasn't ready to end the session. Either one could be dangerous or fatal. So if you're just starting out with an animal, do you really want to make that the subject of discussion first thing? Why not stay out of the exhibit area or stay out of direct contact with the animal for a little bit of time while you have a chance to get to know each other? So knowing that leaving an animal can result in frustration and the animal acting out to stop you. I mean, it's not just you leaving. Maybe they don't care about you, but they sure care about that bucket of food you're taking away. And there are things that we do to manage that problem and even get rid of it. But it takes much more skill. We have to learn to randomize our motion and just incorporate all this change and diversity in our everyday interactions. So a, a dangerous habit is to go in, work for five minutes, leave and go to the next animal because that animal, your first animal is going to be watching you maybe and seeing you give all that great food to the next guy when he could have had it all if he just grabbed your bucket or if he just stopped you from leaving. So maybe that's not the way you want to do that. So what we do instead is, for example, just go in with the animal, do some work, throw some uh, food over to one corner, go out, work with the animal over the top of the enclosure, even if they can't see us, come out and work through the barrier, go on the other side, climb in over the public area maybe, you know, we, we can really be random so that the animal doesn't sit there uh, mauling it over. Gosh, they're going to leave me anytime. I don't want them to leave yet. Blah, 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 blah. We don't want that to happen. We want the animal to be constantly engaged to the extent that they're not even worried about you leaving. And as a matter of fact, a great thing to do is to be that trainer, to be that trainer that comes back unexpectedly throughout the day, that has little games and little treats and little ideas and does unexpected things throughout the day. And one way to be that trainer is if you can get your work done more efficiently. So here's another thing to keep in mind. If you're a zookeeper, 
And maybe you don't even care if you're a trainer, but you recognize that you want to have cooperative uh, care with the animal where they participate and cooperate so that you can brush their teeth or take their blood or get a hair sample or trim their nails, whatever. It may be that your day is so busy that it's really hard to reliably get any training time at all. But you know what? When you learn to skillfully exploit the opportunities to train over a barrier, you can, while you're doing the morning checks, just by adding one or two minutes to your routine per animal, you can cover so much material. You can teach bridges, targets, body parts, names of things, um, all those little procedures that you can do at the door. You don't have to go in the exhibit. You don't have to have all the safety equipment. You can do it lickety split. And that means you can do it at all. Uh, when I was at National Zoo, we had 29 animals. Most of the times it could vary a little bit, but anyway, 29 animals. How many of those animals are assigned to you on your line? And if your line was the bear, bear line, it would be, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 12 animals. And you are your day is already packed. But for 12 animals, you might be able to squeeze out 24 to 30 minutes to cover really important stuff. And it makes it realistic. So it's not hard. It's a matter of setting the intent and then figuring out how to get it done. You know, when you first start anything, you spend a lot of energy going, gee, how would I do? Oh, I should have remembered to bring a bag. Oh, I didn't think to bring the treat. Oh, my targets aren't there. Gee, if only I had a bottle of goat milk spray to use for the great cats in the refrigerator here. I wish I'd thought to put that there. So you got to get all that figured out and then make sure you have your bridges and your targets, uh, your camera, your tripod, whatever it is you need, and you're ready to go, go, go. So with a little bit of planning, if you train over a barrier, you can have a good ongoing uh, training program with the least amount of expenditure. So how good can it be? Well, at the University of Maryland, we train pigs to allow us to, well, it's not that they allowed us, they voluntarily cooperated to for uh, blood draws from the vena cava. So the vena cava is a five inch deep stick blind stick. So there's no obvious uh, landmarks. And you have to get good at making this puncture. 
and the pigs will cooperate with you. And it's really important they cooperate because if they move and you knit the vagus nerve, they can drop dead on the spot. And that's not what we want. So when we first started, we thought, oh, wow, this is really going to be difficult because the pigs that, you know, got snared and the blood was just taken, gosh, they'd scream their heads off. They were apparently very stressed, very noisy. It took three people to handle the pig and collect the blood. Imagine our surprise when, as we awaited the delivery of a carefully designed squeeze chute, we accidentally ended up with all the pigs trained. And you know how much it took? It took an average of one hour per animal divided into two to five minute training sessions three to five times a week for two and a half weeks. That's all it took. In other words, if you make good use of those two minutes every time you check on your animals on your line, at the end of two and a half weeks, you could be taking blood from the vena cava. Are you serious? I'm absolutely serious. And when we did that, in case you don't remember this story, I love to tell it. We did have a problem. And that is that initially the untrained pigs would scream their heads off and be very apparently stressed by the whole thing. But with training, and this is where we got the whole idea of calling things perception modification. With training, we had a different problem. All the pigs wanted to be first. And we had to teach them their names and to wait for their name to be called. And if you watch the video at cinelia.com slash press, and you have to click on it, uh, it's been like shrouded so that People going by can't see the video. They have to go click on it to see it on YouTube. But it's worth it because you will not only see this pig cooperating, avidly cooperating to, to give blood, but you'll see the second little pig waiting quietly behind the tech's shoulder. He, he wants to be next. He knows it's his turn to be next, and he is waiting his turn. Whoa! Who doesn't want that for their animals? Where some medical thing that has to be done in this particular case, they had to monitor these herds for brucellosis and pseudorabies. And so it had to be done. Isn't it so much better? If the animals are confident and calm and happy to cooperate with that. Because you know what? We thought the needle was the terrible thing in that procedure. That's the reason the pigs were screaming. That's the reason it would be hard to train. No, the needle is the least of it. When we showed the pigs the prick of the skin, and then ask them, can we prick your skin now? They were like, yeah, sure. It's as if they didn't even notice the prick. 
But what they notice is the violation, the violation of being snared, the violation of being held against their will, the violation of not being told what you're going to do, the violation of this person that you were coming to trust, all of a sudden grabbing you and sticking things in you. And we avoid all that by just collaborating with the animals, with their uh, willing knowledge. And we do it more efficiently if we can do it across the barrier. So final note, what kind of barriers are there? Well, there can be stall doors for horses or fence lines. And you have to put some thought into it because uh, if your animal is inside a round pen, for example, it could be that the fence line is too tall for you to work over it effectively. I had a screen come on. There we go. And it sheds more light, so it was distracting. So excuse me, I just fixed that. Um, so it could be the top of a fence. It could be, in the case of a dog, a baby grate. The dog could be inside a crate. It could be through a chain link fence. We did a lot of training of polar bears for cooperative care, uh, all the bears at the National Zoo by working through the you know chain link panels. And you wouldn't believe what all they learned to do. They learned to get their teeth examined to get hair sampled, to uh, put their back up against the wall. The bears would stand up and lean their back against the wall. And they did this just using two targets. And I defy you to figure it out. If you figure out how you could do that with two targets, you email me or put it in the comments and uh, I'll contact you because it took... It was ingenious the way the trainer did it. Okay, so other things could be an exercise pen. Um, if the animal is down in, in zoos, a lot of times the animal is kind of in an exhibit pit and you're looking down on the animal so you can interact with them over a moat in the bottom of a pit. The animal could be in an aviary and you're next to that. Uh, underwater, let's see. Yeah, you can be outside of the water and use a target pole under the water and not be in direct proximity to the animals. So lots of different ways that you can make this work. But the first thing you have to do is really grapple with how much is possible. Then once you set the intent to harvest this opportunity, you need to figure out the logistics, get all your things that you need organized and ready to go. You need a bit of a training plan. And guess what? It's really easy at first because at first everybody needs to do the same thing. They need to do the bridges, the targets, uh, distance, direction, duration. For direction, you need north, south, east, west, right, left, up, down, over, under, around, between. 
And then you can go to other concepts, on versus off, right versus left, over versus under, jump versus plant. Plant is where all the feet are in contact with the ground. Gosh, there's so much you can do. Okay, let me know if you do it. Let me know. I would love to hear it. So please, please, please share with your friends. Um, help us get the word out. But also, it's lifeblood to me when you all comment. Now, Sylvia sent me a comment, and I still haven't responded to it. I did respond to her directly. But get this, guys. I went out and got a so-called smartphone specifically so I could run my app for my podcast so I could answer the comments and so on. No sooner did that than all of a sudden the phone starts having problems and currently will not connect to the internet. We've gotten it quote unquote fixed three or four times. So long and short of it is I can't go on my own app because we don't have any smartphones. Why don't we have any smartphones? Well, obviously we're not smart. And also we live way out in the country and we don't get good phone reception. In fact, most of the time you can't even call us on a phone. So we're still grappling with that, but I will find a way to get an answer back to you if you leave a comment. All right, folks, thank you so much. You take care and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.